Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Nothing Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your presence. I took a little break yesterday because I was not feeling very well um, and I needed a break. Um, and so here we are um, with my break. <laughs> I feel much better today. So I'm, I'm going to be back as promised and we're going to do something on the... Uh, cosmology of the Bhagavata Purana. Okay, uh, I think you all know what the Bhagavata Purana is. It's a great book. It's, it's you know, or Bhagavatam, Shri Bhagavatam. Um, this particular book that I have is is about the cosmology of the Bhagavata, Bhagavata Purana. Uh, it only talks about the cosmology in it. It's a great book. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you want. It's written by Richard Thompson, but it's, it's really, really good. And it's uh, published by Motilal uh, Banarasidpas, Publishers Private Limited in Delhi. And dedicated to his divine grace, uh, Vedanta Swami Prabhupada. Um, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about it. The reason why I'm bringing this up is on my Facebook page, um, so I am linked to someone called Swami Sunir Malanda, Ma Swami Sunir Malananda, okay, and he has a, a post, and I, I, it really struck me, and I thought maybe I'll go back to this, to this book, and it's 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 really amazing. So I'll read you the post. Newton said that gravitation is the attraction between any two objects with mass. Einstein said that even light bends due to gravitational field, but light has no mass. Canada said that 4,000 years back that mass plus internal or external force applied takes on an object towards, uh, takes an object upwards. That is, the, if there's zero mass, an object should be uh, affected by gravity. Light has no mass, true, but there's force from the star or planet, so light bends. So this is what uh, I, um, Newton said and Einstein said and Canada said. Um, it, what he's trying to say that more than 3,005 years ago, Canada Mahashri, okay, uh, a guru, a uh, rishi, gave the clearest and best definition of gravitation. If there is no external ob obstruction or force of any kind, a body keeps falling due to its mass. Um, and it, it struck me that Einstein couldn't get it, but 3,000 years ago, we got it from uh, our very own Rishi. And that is really, really, really um, astounding, something which we've never learned in school. Just to elaborate on it, um, the uh, chapter 5.1 of his Vaishekika Sutra is a marvelous chapter about gravitation. Kanada says, if there's no pull or push of any sort, a body falls due to its inherent mass in a vacuum. Therefore, a heavy ball and feather fall at the same time but they don't fly. Kannada was correct. Kannada says, uh, Kannada Maharishi says that there is no internal or external force 
uh, acting, there is neither upward nor downward movement. Canada gave examples of a pestle. When a pestle, it's P-E-S-T-L-E, comes back up, the woman's hands also comes up. Um, just because of a contact with a pestle. Action and reaction are equal and opposite, says uh, Canada. So Canada says gravity is a sort of samkara inherited in object. For instance, the sideways momentum of the earth, he also gives the example of a sleeping man falling down. If you want to understand this, the best thing to do is cymatic frequencies. We are cymatic frequencies, so a frequency goes in either direction, uh, and it's equal and opposite. So just type uh, cymatic frequencies, that's C-Y-M-A-T-I-C frequencies, on Google or YouTube, and you will see what he's talking about. We are all cymatic frequencies. The cosmos is a cymatic frequency. The galaxies are cymatic frequencies. Everything is cymatic frequencies. And the cymatic frequencies has two things, physical and metaphysical. The metaphysical is the energy, is a gravitational force uh, that's made up of electric and um, negative and positive and magnetic. So uh, electromagnetic, negative, positive and magnetic. And we have the mass, which is the particles and this mass and and um, and metaphysical has has evolved over the centuries uh, photosynthesized metamorphosized to form species uh, mass planets atmosphere species of life and this species of life have one of our species is the human so at the core we are still the cosmos we don't have free will and we do what we want we are the cosmos um, and the cosmos roams in cycles uh, uh, cycles that are currents and waves and these currents and waves are, are cymatic and you can you can google it and take a look at that so while i was reading this I, I thought about my book i bought many years ago and i thought i'll read some chapters from it and you'll see it i i asked i ask you if you have the ability buy the cosmology of the bhagavata purana so i'm just going to read you something about uh, on chapter um, a1 i think it is um Sorry, uh, yeah, chapter A1. Uh, the 28th Nut Shastras. Okay, I think everyone knows what it is. So the nakshastras are 27 or 28 star constellations situated along the epileptic. They play a role in Indian astronomy similar to that of the 12 constellations of the zodiac in the West. They are... Um, they are particularly connected with the motion of the moon, which completes one side rail orbit in about 27.3 days. The Nakshastra has identified with the star constellations, each of which have a principal star or junction star, Yoga Taraka. The constellations are irregular in shape, but the Nakshastras uh, are also defined by the angular subdivisions of the epileptic. In other systems, subdivisions of various lengths are used. The Surya Siddhanta uses 27, 27 equal divisions and it plays the beginning of the first Nakshastra. Ashvin, 10 west of the principal star of Revati, thought to be the Zeta Piscium. By procession, the star would have aligned with the vernal, with, with the vernal equinox in about 570 AD. In all the lists, Ritika um, 
is listed as the first nakshatra. Some have argued that this refers back to the time when the Ritika was the vernal equinox, and this would have been uh, in about 220 BCE. The names of 28 nakshastras are listed on a table, I will repeat that shortly, along with its modern names of the junction stars taught to correspond to them. We note that for some junction stars, the corresponding modern star is uncertain. The nakshastras are assigned presiding deities and constellation figures. Uh, the nakshastras are divided into groups uh, according to the Siddhartha Swami commentary on the Bhagavata. So I'll just go through the nakshastras for you. Um, the Ashwini, Bharani, uh, Ritika, uh, Rohini, uh, Maragstirsa, Ardhara, Punavasu, Kusya, Asleya, sorry, Aslesa, Magha, Purva Pagluni, Uttar Pagluni, Hasta, Sitra, Swati, Vis, Visaka, Anurada, Jaishta, Mulla, Purva As, Purva Sada, Uttar Sada, Abhijit, Swaran, Dhanishta, Sattabisha, Purva Bharada Pada, Uttar Bharada Pada, and Revati. So 28 in all. I'm sorry if I massacred their names there. I'm not really good at it. Um, so that, my dear friend, is the 28 constellations. Um, I'm also going to go through something important that I thought that you would like to know. The history of procession. What is procession? Okay. It's important. This is very, very important for who you are because this defines our trajectory. So please listen to what I'm saying. Uh, take notes if you want. You can go back and, and, and play back the podcast. But uh, you can get this in uh, on chapter A16 in the cosmology of the Bhagavata Purana. You can get the Sri Bhagavatam yourself and read it. Um, procession of the equinox is said to have been discovered by a Greek astronomer, Hipparchus, in the second century BC. He gave it the value of one degree per, cen per century of Egyptian 365 days. Uh, so that, according to Otto Neugebauer, this was an upper estimate. His real estimate being one degree in 77 Egyptian years. Okay. Uh, Theon, writing in the 2nd century AD, held that the equinox trepidates back and forth in a zigzag at the rate of one degree in eight years. In contrast, the modern astronomy teaches the procession proceeds formally through a complete 360-degree cycle. It's correct. So 360-degree cycle is what the procession of the equinox is. That means the Earth goes around its axis... Um, for 360 degrees, which is cyclic, and it non and it takes 20 uh, uh, 25 um, sorry 25 years, 26 years, and oh my God, I lost it. Uh, I apologize. I'm gonna get it back uh, for you. I'm just gonna write here. I completely lost it. Procession, procession. I knew this by heart. 
um, it's 26920, I think it is. Yes, 25920 years. I apologize. My, my apologies. The procession of the cycle is 25,920 years. It means for us to go the whole cycle, 25,920, which means that one degree every 72 years. That degree is a current. Okay, it's, it's a current in a way. It's your mentality because we are the cosmos. The cosmos is moving. We are the cosmos. So our mind, our cycle is one degree every 25 every 72 years. So people think, but why doesn't he change? He has to change his mentality because we are the cosmos. We cannot change as we want. We, we move in cycles and that cycle is 72 years for one degree, my friend. And that's why we don't change. We change labels and we think, oh, we change a label and we've changed. No, we don't. So let's go back. Um, the, media, the medieval Indian astronomy text, the Surya Siddhanta, maintains that the equinox trepidate back and forth 600 times in the Divya Yuga of 4 billion, 4, um, 4, 4,320 years. This, yield, uh, this yields a period of 7,200 years per cycle. The complete cycle covers 108 degrees in four equal legs going east, west, west, east by 27. The rate of precession in the Surya Siddhanta comes to 54 arcs a second, which equals 208 divided by 2, or 66.67 years per degree. These numbers clearly seem to be adjusted to an ideal number 108. Most medieval astronomers either ignored precession or accepted the theory of trepidation. However, Munjal is cited by Bhaskacharya as saying that there are 199,669 revolutions of the equinox in a kalpa. That's 4 billion, um, 320 million years. This gives us a precession rate of about 60 years per degree or one year per arc minute and a full cycle is close to 21,600 years. So uh, the Bhaskaracharya says 21,600. Modern says, modern astronomy says uh, 25,920. According to modern astronomy, the rate of precession of equinoxes uh, in 82,000 is 50.38 arc seconds a year. At this rate, the full cycle comes to 25,720, five years, um, 720.5 years, um, at 71.4459 years per degree. So that's 72 years is what I was talking about. Uh, however, the rate of precession is known to change slowly with the passage of time. A popular definition of precession allots 21 2,160 years for the equinoxes to pass through one sign of the zodiac. So that one cycle, um, uh, one so one cycle of the precession comes 25,920 is what I was saying. This approximation assumes 72 years per degree. The uh, Egyptologist Jane Sellers has argued that the precession cycle of 25,920 years was known in the ancient Near East. Um, this suggests the years of the cycle may be of 360 days, so that it requires 70.96 side real years per degree. In either case, this estimate of the rate of precession is much more accurate than 
any of the pre-modern rates mentioned above. So according to the Surya Sudanda theory of trepidation, the cycle of procession was at its center point at the beginning of the Kali Yuga. According to many Jyoti Shastras, Kali Yuga began in 3102 BC. The trepidation returns to the center point after 3,600 years, which becomes 280-499. So the Surya Siddhanta is saying that the position of the equinoxes was the same in 3,102 BC and in 8499. The latter date falls in the life of Aryabhatta, uh, who is the first of the known authors of the Jyotisha text. Aryabhatta wrote that he was 23 years old when 60-year cycles had elapsed in the Kali Yuga. It, was, it would be interesting to know why the Surya Siddhanta theory procession happens to make the sky looks the, look the same in Aryabhata's lifetime as it was at the accepted beginning of the Kali Yuga. Um, okay, so Van Deer Warden's argument, the evidence of Evidence that 3102 BC was calculated using Jupiter-Saturn con conjunctions uh, noted that according to Alberoni, uh, certain Chaldeans and inhabitants of the Babylonian civilization assigned the deluge, deluge, the, the deluge, I don't know if you know, heard about Noah's Ark and, and the floods. Um, so, um, it's it's huge thing in Abrahamic history, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So there was a big flood in Babylon, uh, Babylonia, and um, the uh, the people of the earth survived by going into an ark. It's called Noah's Ark. Uh, so this deluge, he assigned it to three thousand three hundred fifty-one BC. Alberoni also said that the astrologers specified that a conjunction had occurred two twenty-nine years and one hundred eight days before the deluge. By adding 229 years to 3351 BC, we can estimate that 478 years separated the astrologer's conjunction from 3102 BCE. This is almost exactly 24 small conjunctions or two middle conjunctions. This suggests that these astrologers were working with planetary parameters indicating a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in uh, 3102 BCE. But evidently, they didn't think that the deluge occurred this time. We can imagine that later on, astrologers jumped forward to middle conjunctions to 3102 BCE. When they realized that other planetary conjunctions occurred to this date, they decided that this was when the deluge really happened. Um, this was Van der Bearden's idea. Uh, an astrologer, uh, but one could just as well argue that Alberini's astrologers already knew about 3102 BCE but rejected it. Their 3351 BCE flood date shows that they didn't think that the deluge should fall on a Jupiter-Saturn Jupiter conjunction. There are evidently differences in opinion among the astrologers. The Islamic writer, mashallah, put the deluge in 3301 BC. This is 10 small conjunctions before 3102 BCE that Mashallah writing in the 9th century or later probably knew about uh, the previous assumptions and rejected it for some reasons. Um, according to the Western writers, um, 
Babylonian astrologers were living in a Hellenistic period, but all we really know about them is that they came before Alberini, uh, who wrote in the 10th century. All we know is that their knowledge of 3102 BCE date may have come from India, as they even had some, as, as, and it may even have come from Aryabhata, who was active around uh, 580. So the yoga system. According to the Puranas, the bull of the Dharma, or religious principles, begins with a four-legged Ritta Yuga. Okay? Uh, in each successive yuga, the bull loses one leg and virtue decreases, un until finally it totters on one leg in the Kali Yuga, and corruption becomes rampant. A striking parallel to this story is told by the Sioux, Indian of North America, who have a cyclic chronology of the four ages. The um, anthropologist Joseph Apes Brown writes, according to the Sioux mythology, it is believed that the beginning of the cycle a buffalo has placed at the west in order to hold back the waters. Every year this buffalo loses one hair, and every age he loses one leg. When all his hair and four legs are gone, then the waters rush in one again, in once again, and the cycle comes to an end. It is believed by both the American Indians and the and the Hindus that at the time, at the present time, the buffalo or the bull is on one on his last leg, and he is very nearly bald. Corresponding beliefs could be cited by many other traditions. It's an interesting feature to 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 feature these parallel accounts is that both apply uh, to the four ages. So I hope you know that uh, we have uh, uh, people who, who follow the same system of the ancient world and, and they are the natives, in the, well not all natives, but the Sioux, the certain tribes. In course of this study we have repeatedly encountered evidence suggesting that the history of science has not been one of linear progress. Um, in this appendix, we will see a briefly outline some evidence indicating a deadline in astronomical knowledge between roughly 2500 BCE and the rise of the scientific Babylonian astronomy late in the first millennium. We begin by considering the One Great Pyramid. This remarkable structure was built around 2500 BC out of some 22.5 million um, Lime, million blocks of limestone weighing at least 2.6 feet a ton. Many fantastic things have been written about the Great Pyramid, but the sober facts have been even more remarkable in their implications. The parameter of the Great Pyramid was ac accurately measured at 921.435 meters using modern surveying methods, and its height is about 146. 0.73 meters. If we divide the parameter by height, the ratio is about 2 times 3.14. That's pi. Uh, thus, the angular pyramid indicates a sphere where the circumference divided by the radius is 2 times pi. If we divide the surface of the pyramid by the area of its base, we get 1.6195, which is close to the golden mean. Um, a famous ratio in the history of art and architecture. Um, the relationship was known as the, to the Greek historian Herodotus, who uh, born between 485 and 425 BCE, who commented on the surface area of the one face of the Great Pyramid equals to its height squared. 
this is mathematically equivalent of saying that the ratio of the surface area to its base is um, um, is the golden mean. But by the kind of mathematical coincidence, the pi relationship with the golden mean relation mean relationship cannot be exactly true. But if one is nearly true, the other will also nearly be true. Could either have been built into the Great Pyramid intentionally? Quite possibly both were intended. I think it has to be intended. But it would imply a knowledge of pi and the golden mean in 2500 BCE. To add to this mystery, John Legan observed that the three Giza pyramids fit precisely in a rectangle, aligned to the cardinal directions with an east-west side of 1414 cubits and north side of 1732. These lengths come to thousand times the root of two and three respectively. The hypotense of this rectangle is a thousand times the square foot of pi, which is related to the golden mean. It is not coincidental. It implies both an interest in mathematics and a unified plan for the construction of all three pyramids. The imminent historian of science, Otto uh, Neugebau, commented on the basis of the surviving text that Egyptian mathematics never rose above a very primitive level. This may be a proper conclusion from the texts such as Rhine Papyrus dating to the Egyptian 16th dynasty, but it's not born out of the Giza pyramids of the 4th dynasty. Actually, even surviving texts give hints of sophisticated knowledge. Um, other astronomers have pointed out that Moscow Papyrus of 2050 to 1800 BCE gives the correct formula for the volume of the transiated pyramid, which hardly seems primitive. Derive this formula using primitive methods and don't uh, look up the answer in advance. He noted that the ancient Chinese also had this formula, but the ancient Babylonian texts do not mention it. He assumed a pre-Babylonian common source. Uh, it's a mistake to try to in invest Egyptian mathematical or astronomical uh, documents with the false glory of scientific achievement, or to assume is still a uh, still unknown science, a secret of lost, not lost, and ex uh, extant texts. Nonetheless, the layout of the Great Pyramid betrays a level of astron astronomical achievement not reflected in extant texts. Um, in, in scientific surveys of the pyramid, um, astronomers found that the average length of the four sides of the pyramid was 230.364 uh, meters. Um, the four sides deviate from this average by only 0 0.7, um, 0.11, 1, and 2.7 and 9 centimeters, respectively. The four sides were accurately aligned with the cardinal directions with an average discrepancy of three minutes of the arc in any direction. Um, we will go to the Babylonian astronomy now. Uh, now, let us turn to the history of Babylonian astronomy. It is, the it is about the 7th century BC. The Babylonian scribes uh, began a program of scientific astronomical observation aimed at predicting the astronomical phenomenon. For the purposes of 
for the pro for the purposes of divinity and magic, as we say now, we don't know what they had in mind. But the third to the first centuries BCE, they developed sophisticated compute com computational procedures that were used to generate epimermis tables, living listing predicted dates of phenomena. The archaeoastronomer uh, Swerdolo argues that the scribes' great science of the heavens is as close to the origin of science and the methods of practice of science as we shall come. Based on this extensive analysis of the Babylonian um, astron astronomical texts, tablets, he is convinced that the scientific method of collecting observational delta and fitting mathematical rules to it is created by Babylonian priest astronomers. Swadlow emphasizes that the strong point of Babylonian astronomy was its prediction of phenomena in time. He points out, however, that the Babylonians were very limited in their ability to mathematically denote positions of celestial bodies in space and to observe and or predict such positions. They did not use geometric models in the manner of the Greek astronomers. Indeed, their approach was arithmetical rather than geometrical. And Swedlow uh, announced that even the division of a circle into 360 was a Greek geometrical adaption of the Babylonian arithmetical convention. Positions of the planets in the skies were defined at best in terms of 12 signs of the zodiac. Thus, the Babylonian astronomers had no reliable meaning of finding a longitude more precisely than by zodiacal signs or by beginning and the end of the zodiacal sign as reported in diaries, meaning in both cases nothing more precise than the location in the vicinity of particular stars of irregular zodiacal constellations. Uh, so the lack of uh, documentation for ancient advanced signs cannot be used to conclude that the signs never existed. Um, astronomers, researchers point out that in Babylon, astro astronomical texts were restricted to, indeed, intelligible to a very small circle of scholars that were no, in no sense of published works. The Babylonian astronomical texts were evidently survival uh, from the workshop of a small group of researchers. It is surprising that they have survived, and it would not be at all surprising if they even lost. An example of non-survival of ancient technical documentation is provided by the story of Antikritia computer, an advanced astronomical computer based on an intricate system of gear and wheels, was discovered in a shipwreck off the coast of Greek. Um, this ship was loaded with statues and other objects of art, and it sank in 65 BCE. The computer was first recovered from the wreck as a shapeless lump that split open to reveal a set of brass plates. Careful study revealed of a mechanism made at least 20 gear wheels, including differential gears and crown wheels. It appears to have been computing a computing machine that would exhibit uh, on a series of dials the motions of the sun, the moon, and the planets. The principles behind the computer design remain unknown. No surviving literature refers to the machines, but surely this example could be unique. It must correspond to the well-developed system of astronomy and the well-developed technology for producing green machines. Both seem to have disappeared without a trace, and, and the Greek island finds itself purely uh, in an accidental position. If 
If it was not for this chance of discovery, we would remain completely ignorant of the existence of such machines in the ancient world. Um, so briefly, uh, in case of the Greek, uh, the find on the Greek of the Greek computer, uh, a great decline in knowledge that occurred with the fall of the Roman Empire uh, may have been more than sufficient to wipe out necessary all traces of science behind its construction. Of course, we easily imagine uh, knowledge being lost without a period of social disruption, but it's um, even with, without a period of social disruption, but it is nonetheless interesting that the Dark Age apparently prevailed well after the time of the Great Pyramid and just before the, before the rise of Babylonian astronomy. Um, scientists uh, have assembled evidence for coordinated dark ages in the Mediterranean, Mediterranean and Near Eastern civilizations is roughly the first quarter of the first millennium. His um, thesis, in a thesis uh, that was produced by a certain man called Peter James, um, that his period represents a gap in chronology that would have been filled in by during the age of everything before 1000 BCE. The more general view of this data is that the gap is a real period in which civilized life was greatly disrupted. In Greece, the gap is famous. Uh, the Greek Dark Age spanned from 1200 to 700 BCE. Uh, an expert on this period wrote that when it began, the craftsmen and art artists seem to have vanished almost without a trace. There seemed little, uh, very little new stone construction of any sort, far less a massive edifices. The metal worker technique reverts to the primitive and the potter, except in early stages. A corresponding dark age in the Near East appears to have been particularly severe. There are thus no Babylonian buildings date with certainty between 146 and 722 BCE. Fewer than 60 texts from Babylon date to 1000 to 750 BCE, even though there were some 12,000 from the previous 500 years Kassite period. Um, a strange feature of Babylonian prehistory is that there are no records of quite sophisticated Babylonian mathematics dating to about 1700 BCE. Records of similar mathematics appear roughly in 300 BCE, but in the intervening period of some 1300 years, there are no mathemat mathematical texts from Babylonian. Uh, since the mathematical tradition was somehow kept alive, this simply shows how easy it is for records of scientific knowledge to disappear. Now, so let's look at the parallels in India. In India, there is a parallel to the Dark Age of the first millennium BCE, but in this period, a period of apparent cultural decline seems to have been much longer. Based on radiocarbon dating, the mature phase of the Harappans, or Indus Valley civilization extended from 2600 BCE to 1900 BCE, and the late phase persisted for a couple of hundred years after 1900 BCE. This is called the first South Asian urbanization. According to the anthropologist Jim Schaffer, many scholars accept that the period from 1900 to 700 BCE was marked by disappearance of cultural traits such as a large-scale public architecture writing of simple system of weights and thus many other material artifacts that are used to characterize the Indus Valley civilization. Thus, this was followed by a second urbanization that took place in the Ganges Valley, beginning from 700 BCE, and continues to present. 
Some authorities have argued that the clean cultural break separates the two urban periods. However, Schaffer emphasizes that there is substantial evidence for continuity of the single, single Indo-Gangetic cultural tradition bridging the gap. Indus Valley sites such as Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro are famous for advanced city planning and for a realistic sculpture reminiscent of the classical Greeks. Stone weights have been recovered from Mohenjo-Daro and archaeologist A.S. Hemi remarked that the, their low ratio of scatter to mean weight may indicate a strict regulation of commerce than in any other countries in that era. Harappan society seems to have been advanced and well-organized, but unfortunately the Harappan script has not been successfully deciphered, and we do not know what the language of the people spoke. We have very little knowledge of their intellectual life. In the period of second urbanization, astronomical development in India appears to have paralleled those of Babylon and Greece, either through direct cultural borrowing or through the parallel creation inspired by diffusion of ideas. The early phase of communication with Mesopotamia may be represented by the Jyoti Savedanga, which is dated uh, to the 4th or 5th century BCE, mainly on linguistic grounds. The later Jyoti Shastras may represent a, a phase in which indigenous developments were influenced by areas introduced from Greek as well as from Babylonian astronomy. In, a, in Indian astronomy, in Indian cultural, culture in general, the idea of was always prominent that knowledge dates back to a very remote area. Thus, the 6th century uh, astronomer Aryabhata wrote the work Aryabhata by name in the same uh, in the is is the same as the ancient um, Swamya Bhuva, um, which as such is true for all time. At the same time, he said that by the grace of Brahma, the previous sunken jewel of true knowledge has been brought up by me from the ocean of true and false knowledge by means of the boat of my own intellect. Taken together, these statements suggest that Aryabhatta saw himself as reconstructing ancient truth from fragments of knowledge that were available to him. We have seen Indian astronomical and cosmological works. Many contain processional references pointing back to the period such as earlier than those accepted for the text in question. We have also seen evidence of advanced astronomical knowledge in the Surya Siddhanta and the Bhagavatam. A hypothesis to explain this is that advanced astronomical knowledge may have existed on the Indian subcontinent in the period of the first Indian urbanization. At this time, as in later eras, there were diffusion of knowledge and inspiration uh, uh, along trade routes linking east and west. Uh, thus, we may have existed in an international scientific elite pursuing similar ideas in countries ranging from area from India to Egypt during this period. Subsequently, knowledge declined through the areas in the period of darkness, only to increase again after 700 BCE. At present, of course, the hypothesis is very tense, and much additional research is needed to give it a solid foundation. So I hope you, uh, you, you understood what I said. I was reading from the last chapters of the cosmology of the Bhagavad Purana. Um, I'm just going to go back to something 
that is very important. We've talked about this before, but in my own words, um, it says a hypothesis to explain that this is an advanced astronomical knowledge may have existed in India in the period of the first Indian urbanization. At this time, as in later eras, there was diffusion of knowledge and inspiration along the trade routes linking East and West. So what does that mean? I was talking about to you about the Vedic belt. If you go all the way to Western Sahara, Morocco, and you go all the way um, across the equator to Indonesia, Malaysia, you will see swastikas, my friend. That's because this is a belt. People were nomadic people. They moved from one end to the other end without any barriers in between. So the, this was what is called a, a Vedic belt. There were Vedic symbols, Vedic civilization here. The only reason why the civilization disappeared because this area turned into desert. So the moment you turn into desert, there's no water, no agriculture. People are not going to stay. But at one time, there was a civilization. And although the civilization disappeared in the, in the uh, hot areas, in the arid desert areas, the artifacts still remain telling us that there was a civilization. People moved from one end to the other and carried knowledge with them. They were caravans of knowledge because knowledge was the most important jewel in the crown. And even when this area turned the desert, people still carried this knowledge. Nomadic people from one end to the other and moved along. And there's a lot of data out there trying to tell us that, uh, yes, there was a civilization here and it continued for a very long time in different formats and it's come down to us. So although we've lost the civilization, we've changed the labels, but the mentality is still the same because we're currents and waves. It's our currents that form the waves. We do not lose knowledge so easily. It just changes the format. And it's very important to understand, to understand the currents that form our waves. These currents that form our waves is called Atwa. All that lies in between, the layers and the layers and the layers of, of data in our DNA um, that's, that makes us who we are today, influences us and that we have inherited. So Atva, all that lies in between, or as we say today, Hindutva, Hind coming from water or bodies of water surrounding the Indian subcontinent that make up our currents and waves, everything that lies in between. It is, um, it is no different. It is not an ideology. It is not a political basis. It is Hindutva is a, a scientific term, which means currents and waves, because we are made up of, uh, of water, thousands and billions of years of water and cycles of that. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the, 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 the small podcast on the cosmology of the Bhagavata Purana. If you have a chance to read it, uh, please go ahead. This book is just a small book on the cosmology part of it, but you know, the Bhagavatam is really huge. So, um, that's a whole different story come together. Maybe I will talk to you about some more of it later on, but for now we'll keep it as this. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you had a great day. I hope you have a great, you have a great Saturday, uh, Friday coming up and a great weekend. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe, everyone. Peace and heal. It's most important to heal. Thank you and see you tomorrow.